This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. You're listening to Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. I'm Poonam Verma. Now on the show today, I had an interesting little debate stroke discussion with a meat eater versus a vegan. Um, that got interesting. We got Dan Waynes from Carnistore and Meryl Jaburi, a plant-based nutritionist, to see who really is saving the planet. We're also talking about body image, especially within the Indian community. Hormones, how much do they rule our lives, women? Well, Joanne Proctor is a hormone nutritionist. She fills us on all the facts and figures for that. And uh, Lawrence Agbo is a fitness trainer and he's showing us tips when it comes to strength training. How to strike a pose, I find out with photographer Olga Mekida. And we have a group of talented students in Dubai who have come up with the school of the future. So we hear so many facts and figures about how we can help the planet by eating less or no meat. And um, I recently watched a show called The Game Changer on Netflix about how some of the fastest and strongest athletes in the world on the planet um, are on plant-based diets or are only vegetarians. And whilst I was watching it, I was also ordering my shopping online at the same time. Now, this is no joke, but by the end of the show, I literally took every meat item off my shopping list one by one. And that's how much this show actually influenced me. The very next day, I happened to bump into Dan. He's the cow, the co-founder, the cow that actually works very well. He's the co-founder of Carney Store and he's a passionate meat eater. And I just told him very casually about the show and that it's a great debate because he started mentioning about, you know, Think about who's making that film. Where are the benefits going? Are these facts true? And I thought, let's get let's talk about this on air because I'm not really well educated. I only hear what generally you all hear. And we think they're the experts and we hope they are talking facts. But I wanted to make it fair. So we are joined by Dan from Carnistore and also a vegan, um, passionate vegan, I should say, Meryl Jaburi. She's a plant-based food developer and holistic nutritionist. Welcome to you both. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Are you okay? Thank you. I was I was hoping to ladies first there. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. So first of all, um, Meryl, have you seen this show, The Game Changer, the documentary? Yes, I. I, Yes, I saw it a while back. Yes. So, what what do you think of it? Because this is where this discussion came from when I was talking to Dan last week. So actually, I uh, I actually first read. How Not to Die book by Dr. Michael Greger. And basically, it's a nutrition-based book, and it's evidence-based nutrition on the health benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. Mm. And that's when I learned more about the benefits uh, of this diet, and I decided to try it out. And that's when I then took it further and got certified as a holistic nutritionist. So my shift has never been because I don't dislike the taste of animal products. In fact, I loved it. It was more from the aspect of reading about the evidence-based nutrition, not attached to any specific diet, but following what the recommendations are based on what, you know, today. So how long have you now been a vegan? Um, it was in, on July 28, 2020, during Corona is did, when I made the change. And did you find it difficult? Did you notice any major differences or benefits from it? 
Um, uh, I felt amazing after getting on the diet. When I first started, I thought I'd give myself a month, try it out and see how I felt. Um, I was con felt constantly bloated. That immediately subsided and I just felt uh, I lost, a, you know, the extra weight that wasn't kind of coming off and I just felt more energetic. Uh, was it easy? I think, honestly, it depends on... Um, it's the mindset. Of course, it's not initially going to be an easy shift because there is, uh, you know, they do have to read up. You have, do have to understand what are the health, uh, what are the alternatives and make sure that you're doing it safely so that you're eating a well-rounded diet to get everything that you need nutritionally. So, uh, yeah, of course, I had to throw out a lot of things from the, out of the kitchen and then buy a whole lot of other stuff. Um, I do think that for you to do it, safely and responsibly there needs to be a minimum level of education um you know of just reading up uh, from reliable sources and equipping yourself with being able to adopt this diet but of course i've seen people you know adopt the diet and struggle or walk away from it just because it's you know it's it's you know i'm 38 now i spent 35 years of my life eating a standard diet so mm. you know shifting to something else obviously needs time to adjust and you know it needs time, but because my mindset and my, you know, I was convinced of the health benefits that that kind of it's an easy decision for me today. Is there anything extra you have to take like supplements now that you're not having meat? Because there is that discussion too. Okay, so in terms of supplementation, um, assuming that of course, you're eating a well rounded diet. So that includes your fruits, vegetables, your beans and lentils, so all sorts of legumes your whole grain, so your brown rice, your quinoa, all that sort of stuff, and your nuts and seed. If you're making sure that you're eating everything in a balanced manner, um, you still would need to supplement with B12. And the reason to that is that it's not actually found in plants or animals, it's found in the soil and water. And because of how, uh, um, you know, because of the process of cleaning the water, we no longer have, we, we, B12 is also extracted to make it safe for us to consume. So uh, animals get it when when people on a standard diet uh, eat animal products, they get it as a secondhand uh, uh, from uh, get B12 as secondhand from animals. And if you're on a plant based diet, yes, that is something that you have to supplement with. And it is uh, essential in terms of anything else you do. Uh, there is omega three. So omega three is you can probably get it. You would get it on a standard diet from maybe fish. But you can get it if you consume one tablespoon of flaxseed a day in your food. For the omega-3 short-chain fatty acids, for the short-chain, long-chain uh, long fatty acids, you do need to take a supplement because there is a bit of question on whether you can, can get that try, uh, enough of that from food. So to be on the safe side, that is recommended. And then there's also iodine that is not a must to uh, supplement with, but you would get it from seaweed. And the consumption today, for you to get sufficient amounts daily, it's just easier probably to get it through a supplement, but that's not essential if you manage to get it through food. So that's in terms of supplementation. Okay, so we've had a text come in saying, I'm an ex-vegan. I was on the diet for 16 years. I got off it because I kept having protein deficiency symptoms like skin problems, aching joints, fatigue, depression, mystery bruises, swollen ankles, and the list goes on. So they keep saying you can get all of the protein you need from plants. But as far as I'm concerned, that must only be true for a select few people that can successfully metabolize plant proteins. In my opinion, veganism doesn't suit everyone. Dan? What's your opinion on this? Um, so first of all, I'd like to applaud Miral on a few points that she said. 
I think it's best to start where we agree. And I agree with her wholeheartedly about whole foods. I think uh, the correct diet is whole foods. I would actually attribute her going on this diet and feeling less bloated to the fact that she eliminated processed foods. And I think that's something mm. we can all agree on totally. is eliminating processed foods. The the one area where I'm going to struggle to agree is on eliminating meat products. Mm -hmm. As she rightfully said, this comes with – this is a first world argument because this comes with necessary supplementation. The omega-3 is very important, EPA and DHA, and the vitamin B12s, but the whole B-suite in general. Um, it's difficult to get enough to, to keep your, your hair healthy, your, your skin healthy, your nails healthy, to keep uh, the feelings of fatigue at bay, right? To keep away any, any sorts of anemia, uh, iron deficiencies as well. Although you can, get, you can get enough iron if you're careful on a plant-based diet. But these are, again, first world arguments because two-thirds of the world cannot afford these supplements, yeah. right? What do, you say to, what do you say to people like that? They can't, you tell them, okay, this is the best diet for you and you need a B12 supplement. By the way, these supplements are not whole foods, they're supplements. So if we want to adhere to a whole foods diet, the only way to do it is to consume animal products. And I think that when we go into animal products, we need to see, we need to look at the benefits and we need to look at the cons as well, uh, both sides of it. And we need to look at it from a holistic point of view. We need to look at it, uh, the effect that it has on the planet. We need to look at the effect that it has on our health. We need to look at the effect that it has on those animals, the husbandry themselves. Are they ethically sourced animals? I think there are many things to say once we decide, hey, yes, I am going to go for this whole foods diet, then we need to source it responsibly. Can you explain green water and blue water when it comes to livestock? Uh Okay, the best way that I can say this is we have actually three types of water. We have green water, blue water, and gray water, right? Green water is the water that comes from rain, right? Mm. Uh, rain, floodwaters, uh, things like that, and it's it's a direct source of water. Mm. Blue water is more irrigated water. It can it can come from lakes, streams. It can come from the sea, and it's desalinated. Um, and then gray water is is wastewater. Yeah, and Dr. Frank Mitalona, he's the head of the Agricultural Research Center at the University of California. He says there's a radical anti-meat agenda going on. This is what he has to say. He does agree with you, Dan. So the water input that people assign to beef includes the so-called green water. And the green water is rainwater. That rainwater would fall on that land where the animals graze with cattle present, and without cattle present. Now, the vast majority that, of water that goes into a beef animal will go into the beef animal in the form of feed a few hours after it's ingested. It's urinated out. So to me, it is disingenuous to say, oh, look at all that water that, grows, that goes into, into growing cattle. These people who come up with the statistics of these enormous amounts of water going into beef, they're counting rainwater. And that's just not right. Yes, it's, there's so many interesting facts coming out. Now, Meryl, I wanted to ask you, I, I was reading up about um, almond milk, how the production of it is double, tripled. You know, it uses, and it says apparently, um, stats have shown that al almond milk production uses around 17 times more water than cow milk production per litre. And a survey showed that 50 billion bees which equates to more than seven times the world's population were wiped out during the winters of 2018 and 19 because they're needed for these almond orchards. So we keep hearing, you know, a lot of the positive sides. What, what kind of, you know, facts, 
I mean, can you respond to that, first of all? What do you think about that? Uh, yes, sure, sure. So basically, in terms of uh, the usage of water and comes to production of almonds or then used to then make uh, uh, almond milk, mm. um, I would say that uh, that is just one metrics. So you also need to look at water. You need to look at the land. You need to look at the uh, gas emissions. That's the emission that's being produced. Um, it's, there's many different things to consider. So while it might be use, wasteful in certain uh, aspects in terms of water consumption, there is also other metrics to look at in terms of the animal agriculture. Just a statistic to share in terms of just the water uh, usage. Globally, agriculture uses 70% of all available water, but animal agriculture demands the most. It takes 18,000 liters of, to produce one kilo of beef, while it takes 120 liters to produce one kilo of potato. So I, uh, regardless of what, there's, you can't produce anything, whether plant-based or animal or whatever it may be, without having some sort of footprint on the environment. However, the, the, the question is to what extent, to what degree are we, are we you know, um, uh, exhausting the environment? Also, another statistics, it takes 25 kilograms of feet to produce one kilo of beef. So there are also other metrics to consider, I would say, not just water. And I would agree, yes, when it comes to almonds, perhaps it is quite, uh, consumes a lot of water, but there are other things to also look at in terms of land and energy. Yeah, no. Uh, I, allow me to respond. Sorry, yeah, Poonam. sure, go ahead. Um, so again, it, it comes back to the green water, what she said about, um, you know, to produce one kilo of beef, again, Grass-finished beef, 97% green water. To say you're wasting green water is similar to saying that, that you're wasting the sunlight by sunbathing. It, it doesn't make any sense, right? Mm. These, these, are, these are waters that would fall naturally anyway. So, again, let's look at it from planting potatoes, right? You're clearing out a field completely. And, by the way, killing all the animals in that field, right? Killing all the rodents, killing everything else. And then you're coming through with pesticides mm. so that anything that you didn't manage to kill, you're, you're, you're finally clearing out. And then... After that, you're planting these potatoes and you're not waiting for rainwater. You are using almost exclusively blue water to grow these potatoes. So it's a whole different argument. When we look at it, we have to do a cradle to grave analysis, right? We have to look at exactly what we're talking about. Let, let okay, me ask you. So, sorry, ahead, in response to the land, I would also say that the animal agriculture takes up nearly 80% of the global agriculture land, but produces less than 20% of the world's supply in terms of calories. So again, I would agree with you. We, we are using land for plant-based ingredients and also to grow, you know, for animal agriculture. But the question is how much uh, animal agriculture is very wasteful in terms of land, water, and energy. So what, if you're looking at all different aspects. What kind of animal agriculture are you talking about? Are you talking about um, livestock that's grown and fed grain exclusively? Because I would agree I mean, with you, I that's think... not good. But when it comes to grass feeding, right, which is necessary for soil carbon sequestration, right, to, to basically absorb the, the carbon from our atmosphere, when it comes to grass feeding, that's simply not true. It doesn't consume that much land, and it donates a lot to our, our grasslands. And it allows us to have natural fertilizer instead of having chemical fertilizers. Uh, go ahead, Meryl. No, I mean, for me, again, I would go back to saying that um, you know, another statistic, animal agriculture is one of the leading contributors to climate changing emissions. It has more damaging than the fuel emissions from all transportations put together. So that's simply not true. I don't know what statistics, so that, so I don't know what statistics, we're looking at different statistics. No, no. So, so basically when we look at studies, let's look at, let's agree to drop industry funded studies, any stund studies that are funded by the I sugar agree. lobby or whatever. Let's go government. Okay. Let's go EPA. The EPA study that I'm going to talk to you about, which is the Environmental Protection Agency, 
1.9% of emissions come from all animal agriculture. This is not me. This is the EPA. 28.5% comes from transportation. That's number one. Electricity generation comes second at 28.4%. 21.6% is industry. 64 commercial. Residential, 5.1%. Agricultural crops, 4.7%. More than livestock. Livestock at 3.9%. This is a study I'll happily share with everyone, right? And this comes from the EPA. Now, the reason that a lot of other studies attribute a lot higher to animals is because in their cradle-to-grave analysis, they put all transportation costs of animals, transporting the food to them, transporting the... They put that not on the transportation industry, but they put that on the animal itself, which is not fair because when it comes to an avocado that took two flights to get here from South America, they will put that cost mm. and that that weight all down to the transportation so it's not fair it's playing both sides of the same it, it's not a fair assessment on me yeah there are a lot I, mean, of, I, I have to i have to round this up i'm so sorry meryl i think yes. both of you need to come oh. on again and we need to get in the studio because this is a great <laughs> debate um but it's a great it's a great learning experience because there's so much that i don't know and also i think both of you are learning from each other as well but i do believe i think i kind of think i want to end it on this let's say you know there's this extremity of pushing everyone to become vegans. I think going from one extreme of being a vegan or going from one extreme to just sticking to meat, there's no balance. Life is all about balance, right? So I think it's a matter of trying to achieve that. What do you think, both of you? Life is about balance. I would agree with that. And uh, I do think that fruits and vegetables are important. I, mm. I agree with Miral wholeheartedly on the fo- whole foods. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of whole foods. And Meryl, any last message for us all? Um, I also would agree that I don't necessarily see the entire world becoming plant-based, but I do I do believe that moving towards incorporating more plant-based ingredients in one diet can go a long way for everyone, okay. for the health, for the environment, for everything. Thank I'm you. So sad Thanks, I have to, I'm so sad I have to cut this uh, short, but please, I'm going to invite you both on again, okay? And we'll, we'll get more stats and figures and get you in the studio together. Thank you both of you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. having Thanks, us. Thanks, Thank, Thank you, Dan. So I'm filling in for Helen today and she came across an article in The Guardian the other day saying, oh, this is something that you could probably talk about. Um, And it was about how many Indian women are struggling with their body image. But is that true? Do we as a culture have more pressure to look a certain way than maybe other women from other nationalities? I'm not sure. But the author of this article joins me now. Welcome to the show, Professor Agarwal. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Poonam. How are you? Thank you so much for saying yes to this interview because I only only saw it the other day and straight away you replied. And um, you're in the UK, is that right? Um, I'm living in Ireland at the moment, actually, between UK and Ireland. Oh, nice and cold, I'm sure, right? (laughs) So first of all, let's let's talk about this article because it's quite interesting. Why did you want to write about it in the first place? I think it's something that I've been thinking for a while. Of course, it was grounded in my personal experience of growing up in India. I grew up there. Um, But also it was linked to my research in um, weight bias and fat phobia that I wrote in my first book, Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias, that came out in 2020, Mm. and how that intersects with gender. But the more I research I did in it, I realized that there hasn't been much done in how social and cultural factors intersect with body image or disordered eating. And then I um, and somebody actually mentioned it to me the week before about how the Bollywood star Ashwari Rai had walked the Paris fashion show and how the comments that she had received about her weight. And it kind of spurred on this idea about the pressures that are placed on women 
And this paradox that we live in, where there is so much focus around food, and very rightly so, um, around in Indian and other South Asian communities, but also there is a very um, specific monitoring of women's bodies and uh, the cultural uh, factors which allow people to comment on people's bodies very openly. Um, so um, I didn't want to, I, it, the article's not saying that there is more pressure on Indian women compared to other uh, communities or societies. What I'm saying is that there are specific social and cultural factors which makes it difficult for us to diagnose and talk about disordered eating and eating disorders and body image in uh, Indian and other South Asian women. So, so what kind of pressures? I mean, I'm Indian and a lot of my best friends growing up were non-Indian British, you know, people and Sometimes they didn't understand uh, the pressures or the programming that I had, whether it be good or bad. And that that was fine. And even now, sometimes I might say something to Helen and say, oh, we grew up about thinking this way. And she looks at me and I was like, wow, she actually doesn't have that programming, um, which is very freeing in many ways for certain issues. And that's fine. Everyone grows up with their own culture and their own nationality. But is there anything specific that you were seeing within the Indian community when it came to women that you weren't seeing, let's say, in the non-Indian communities? Um, and I think you're very right about the way we grew up. We internalize some of these messages, don't we? Mm. And we kind of start conforming to them, believing in them, and then imposing them on others. And, and um, on to children and, uh, who carry on. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. We we cre- create these lenses that we view the world with, and and the biases that we pick up um, with our upbringing. So, um, as I as I said, the Indian culture, but other other communities like that, um, which are collectivist in nature, traditionally collectivist, there is less focus on the individual, but more on the society. And in Hindi, we would say "lokya kahenge." There is a big thing about what would people say. Totally. And so, yeah, and so families are trying to. Um, there is there is less talk openly about topics that are taboo because there is so much shame, societal mm. shame that people worry about, yeah. um, and so that creates this silence around certain things as well. And so we internalize this guilt and this shame and mm. keep things taboo and and silent and quiet, which which creates as I say, shame and guilt around it. So things like um, a body image, as I say in the article, it's very much also linked to the colonial legacy that we might have grown up with, where a certain kind of body was idealized, fair, beautiful, thin, slender. Um, And that's part of the colonial legacy, the historic legacy that we've been brought up with. But also this this permission for people to comment on people's bodies, Mm. this Mm. focus on marriage as the ultimate aspiration (laughs) or goal for women, (laughs) saying that you have to get married so you need to look a certain way. And I talked about matrimonial adverts and talking about the differences. My editor um, who commissioned the article said, what are matrimonial adverts? We need to talk. Oh my (laughs) goodness. (laughs) This is taking me so far back because, you know, growing up uh, back in the day, a lot of people, uh, you know, that's how they would find, you know, it's the same as dating apps today, but they were like matrimonial ads. It's the same thing, really, in many ways. And I remember seeing one saying G-S-O-H. And I'm like, what does that mean? And it literally had the guy, fair, G-S-O-H, good sense of humor, educated, just those three things. And it was based and it was based on that. And you're right. There were like little checklists you go through, like, should she be fair? Does she cook? Is she educated? Um, all, all these kind of things. And when I talk to my 17 year old niece, she just looks at me like I'm crazy. She does not have this programming at all. 
And it's still yeah, it's think... still within me, though. Do you know that? It's very weirdly still in me, and I try and get it out. I think that's what I'm saying, that we internalize this. And I've unlearned some of these behaviors growing up as well and realized that actually I was imposing these expectations on other people as well. I know. And I don't want to do that because... Uh, because this these are not right. So I think it takes a while to unlearn those kind of behaviors and programming the, the things that we have internalized. Mm. Um, and so, um, so these things we grow up with and we start accepting them as norm yes. because they are the things that we see around us. And we, we believe that this is there is a certain way to look. There's a certain way that defines being attractive. There is a certain body image that's acceptable and that people have a right to ask, tell me whether I've lost or gained weight. Even now, when I go back to <laughs> India, as I said in the article, that's the first thing often people say, oh, you've lost a lot of weight or you've gained a lot of weight. And it always takes me by surprise because I hadn't even thought about it until then, whether I'd lost or gained weight. But then you start monitoring your own body. You start monitoring what you're eating. And as I also say, in the in the article obviously there are intersectional elements to it and there are regional differences and there are cult- differences in socioeconomic factors but because in a lot of families women might still be cooking and serving food and eating after the men in the family or eat People are not aware of how much they're eating. So mm. it's easy to hide disordered eating or eating disorders or the how the way they are monitoring their own food. Because ultimately, if they look a certain way, then that's fine. People are not thinking about the reasons behind it. Um, and so there is this push and pull between asserting independence in a modern society in India, but also trying to conform to the traditional molds of behavior that we have been seeing for so long. Um, and I think that I'm not, it's not being, um, the article's not critical of anything except the fact that we need to really talk about openly about the fact that some of our social cultural factors could be creating this problem that we are still being silent about and not talking about. And I looked at research studies and they're very sporadic and we're not connected, done with small sample sizes in very small parts of India, but they're still showing that there's a problem and it's linked to anxiety and depression and mental health. So we need to do more of these scientific studies. We need to have a wider understanding of it in the context. Okay, well, Dr. Professor, don't go anywhere. We'll be back. Dr. Professor Pragya Agrawal, who's just done a recent um, article about uh, a lot of Indian women having body images image issues and not being able to talk about it. And we will be joined now by Natasia D'Souza after the break because she's been through this herself. Uh, Emotional eating, body image issues, and she's now coaching other women and helping them through their struggles. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome to the show, Natasia. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Poonam. Thank you for having me. How are you? Very good. Now, we thought about bringing you on with Professor Pragya because you've been through this and you can relate to it. Can you tell us briefly a little bit about your story and how your body image linked to emotional eating and anything else in your life has affected you? Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't relate to this anymore. I'm of Indian upbringing. I've been at my heaviest at 145 kilos, you know, so I was it it was frowned upon because I would receive those exact statements saying you'll never find a husband. You'll never get married. Look at your weight. And then when I lost all the weight, you think it would stop. But then it was like, wow, you're you still have big thighs. You know, I don't know if that's that's really normal. And I was being compared to other Indian women that were of smaller frame, not with the 
there was no understanding that, okay, maybe she's just a bigger frame. Maybe she's just a taller girl, you mm. know? And that was that lack of awareness in the community had such an impact on me. And I see that with my Indian clients now. And, you know, they have this upbringing with, from their family where yeah. they receive constant statements against their body, against their looks. And it's, it's, such, a, it's such an impact on one's body image, on their self-worth, on their mental health. And do you think there's a big link to emotional eating and eating disorders because of this? Because is it something that you went through as well? Absolutely. So the thing with body image, it can be become closely tied to a woman's self-worth, mm-hmm. making her feel less valuable if she doesn't meet those standards, those norms in our society. Then that can lead to depression, anxiety, secretive eating, not wanting to eat in front of her. And just like uh, the professor was saying, you know, um, eating after your, your husband or your family is done. So you're suffering in silence, you're secretive eating, and therefore you feel that, you know, no one's watching me, no one can tell what's happening. No one even cares because the only way they view me is bigger mm. or not normal or not accepted. So, yeah, it definitely enhances the emotionally eating uh, um, coping mechanism in the long run, which is so detrimental to their health. But let, let's think about it. Like all three of us, we all grew up with, you know, those fashion magazines, the, the Bollywood movies, you know, uh, Hollywood movies. Now you've got social media. Uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Pragya, are you seeing effects of social media aggravating the situation too? Absolutely. I, I do think that social media and the exposure to a certain idealized body image and um, and on TikTok and Instagram, there is a lot of research now that it's really affecting mental health of young people, of tweens and teenagers, but especially g- young girls, because there is more pressure on them to look a certain way. There are more, um, I've, I've written a, a lot about gender inequality and about how these expectations are placed more on women. Uh, they are supposed to conform to a certain kind of norm. Um, of of how they should look like and so so young girls growing up are uh, when they're exposed to social media accounts like that or social media pressures and their peer pressure they are um there's a big rise in anxiety depression insomnia um in teenagers um and so yes our 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 culture is also putting this pressure on us but it's heightened by other factors exposure to movies and television and magazines, as you're saying. Um, And there is uh, obviously colorism in our society as well, in Indian community and anybody, any community who's gone through the colonial colonial history about fairness. Um, And that is another aspect that is very peculiar to certain communities and cultures, along with weight and body image. Um, And if you look at Bollywood films, there are certain films which have um, shown um, people who are um, a, a bit um, who are not um, conforming to the body, slender body image, um, who might be seen as perceived as overweight or or fat, and I'm saying that in quote marks, um, they're scorned or they're made fun of, they're laughed at um, until and unless they improve themselves. So there's this whole culture that if you're not doing anything to change it, then you're not working your, on yourself, then you're not improving yourself. So there's something wrong with you. So Pyle is texting. This is for both of you. She said, it's a shame so many Indian men don't take care of their own body and health but expect to have a partner that looks like a Bollywood star there's a lot of double standards and here's the thing I I find interesting if you look at someone like Shah Rukh Khan in his 50s still playing the hero with 20 year olds but but (laughs) that's okay and nobody shames him for being you know oh you shouldn't be with 20 year olds now 
Do you see the yeah, standard there? Absolutely. I mean, ageism is a big factor. Um, women are seen to be old and older much, much sooner. So we see like 30 year olds playing mothers or mothers to even older men sometimes in films as well. Um, and they're very quickly relegated to these older roles because ageism is very deeply embedded in our society and it, there's an intersectional effect. So age, when it affect, intersects with gender, gender bias, gender inequality, it creates more bias or discrimination for older women. So older women are very quickly seen as past it yeah. or not of value to society. Yeah. Nastasia, um, because you've been through this yourself, how, what do you, message do you want to give out to a lot of women out there? You know, for me, it's about creating awareness and understanding that all that we see in social media, it's an unrealistic beauty standard that's getting set. The amount of um, editing softwares that people are using when they're posting their pictures, even their videos for that matter, and really looking beyond a picture and a video and not taking what they see at face value is so important. You know, learning to really love themselves where they are. And hey, if you do decide to lose weight along the way, that's fine. But that shouldn't stop you from loving where you are today to get you to where you need to be. Mm. And, and how would you say that you motivate yourself every day after being through your journey? Do you know what? I have I've lost close to 60 kilos wow. and I have stretch marks. I have scars. I have loose skin. And I tell myself, you know what? I've done my best. I show up for myself every single day. Mm. And that's all that matters. Your opinion of me, the way you think I don't fit in today's society because of my scarrings or because of my skin is irrelevant. It's absolutely irrelevant because I know I'm showing up for me as the best version of myself. Yeah, and, and Dr. Pragya Agrawal, you, you did comment on something which all three of us and anyone in Indian community will definitely, you know, there's an affirmation for this. It's about what will society think. It's such a big thing that's been in our DNA. And I just want to end with one of my favourite quotes. And Dr. Wayne says, what anybody thinks of me is none of my business. So that is something <laughs> I just want to pass on to anyone who feels that they have to answer to society. But listen, ladies, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you both coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you've heard the saying, age ain't nothing but a number. But I was working out this week with a 25-year-old personal trainer. And she forgot that I am not 25 anymore. So my right shoulder is in a lot of pain. So that whole line about age just being a number isn't actually ringing true for me today. But let's face it, with age comes natural changes. And hormones play a massive part in that change. So, for example, we've heard, you know, so much yesterday we're talking about on World Menopause Day about estrogen. You know, that goes down as women get older, leads to menopause. And in men, we hear a lot about testosterone levels, you know, decreasing gradually. But I need an expert on hormones. I want to know whether they dictate most of my mood swings. To tell us more about this is Joanne Proctor, a hormone nutritionist. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. So happy to be here. Now, let's let's break this down. Obviously, you're the expert. What are actually hormones and how do they work in our bodies? Okay, so hormones are chemical messengers that uh, move throughout the body, um, communicating with different glands and organs. So the hormones come from, they make, they're made up from the endocrine system. And the main key glands in the endocrine system are the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the brain. Uh, thyroid, your adrenals, and your pancreas. Mm. 
So they all have different functions. And the key thing is that they are all interlinked, right? So if there is some imbalance in one hormone, that's going to have an impact in the other. Wow. And then that leads us to the hormone hierarchy, right? So I am always sharing this with my clients so they can have a real understanding of how it works. So we have master hormones that sit at the top. Which are these hormones that we need to take care of? <laughs> right. So the, these are cortisol, a stress mm, hormone. Yeah. And then we have insulin, our blood sugar fat storing hormone. So you're saying these two are the major hormones that can control everything else. Exactly. So if you keep those in check, everything else could be in check? Pretty much, right? Because they're all interlinked, right? So yes, they have a, a huge impact. They filter down. So below that, we've got thyroid, we've got melatonin, your progesterone, your estrogen. So they're all impacted by these hormones that sit at the top. So, so if I really broke it down very briefly, because I know there's a lot more to this. Insulin is to do with, well, so I don't know if it's genetic as well, uh, to do with what we eat how we exercise and then the other one was you said um the stress cortisol and that's to do with our lifestyle and stress so you're saying if you can control these two things that was a big make a big difference in our lives exactly yeah 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 exactly um and so stress is not just by you know being in a traffic jam by an argument stress comes from many different places so it can be it can be medications we have from the food we eat. They're mm. putting a stress on the body. Noise pollution, light pollution. These are all forms of stress. But I don't know how we ever avoid <laughs> stress completely unless we do a Jay Shetty and live in a cave apparently for two years. Like, how is this possible? Well, exactly. I know. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, we, we live in a society that is, isn't set up for hormone health. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Unfortunately. So, but the point is to have awareness first. Okay, so we are understanding that this is having an impact. And then it's just finding a balance, right? Supporting ourselves as best we can. Do these hormones, right, naturally get impacted by age? Or is it something that we're depleting in our body? Is it a natural depletion or are we affecting it? I mean, of course, with age, um, you're going to go into menopause. So for a woman specifically, yes, you're going to have your estrogen, progesterone, that's going to become uh, next to none. I mean, what often people don't realize, actually, when we hit menopause, uh, we still are producing some estrogen, but it's coming from our adrenals instead of our ovaries. Oh, so what does that mean if it's coming from the adrenals? Right. Well, it means we still have a little in small amounts, but it's being produced by a different gland, right? Because our ovaries are no longer needed because we have finished reproduction. So what people don't realize is the importance of looking after your adrenal health. How do we do that? In your menstruating years. I, I didn't mean, know this. I haven't heard of this. Tell me about this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, so this is your stress management, right? Mm. So it's so fundamental from all, throughout all our life, right? And it's setting ourselves up when we get to menopause. You know, so but if you look at somebody who's going through menopause, the average woman, not all, the average woman, they're going to have uh, maybe teenage kids or kids at university or younger kids. It's it's not easy to be stress free when you have you know children that age. When yeah. uh, my mom was going through it, she still had to be a mom and take care of us. Yeah, yeah. Of so course. it's so hard to maintain. It's really difficult, and there's a lot of pressure on women nowadays. So it's just knowing what you can do to support yourself. Mm. Um, 
I read a great book. You should read this if you haven't, everybody. Well, I know the women will. No, I think it's really good for men, actually. It's called The Female Brain. They made a movie out of it, but the movie wasn't good. Um, And it talks about the role of hormones and how they play a massive role on women's brains. And it starts from when they're born to the way that they respond to their father as a child to how they even pick a partner as an adult because everything is related and the hormones react in certain ways. Oh, we always hear about how women are so hormone-led. What about men in general? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to look at it really of how the hormone rhythm differs between men and women, mm. right? So men's hormones operate on the 24-hour circadian rhythm. So they get reset every 24 hours, like the sun. Okay. Right, the sun is masculine, men, it's all linked. So women, we follow the infradian rhythm, the 28-day cycle, like the moon, feminine. Yeah. Yeah. So if you just look at that, first of all, you can see it takes us 28 days to reset our hormones compared to men. I don't like men. The more we talk <laughs> about this, I'm just jealous of them now. <laughs> Right. Have a so smooth ride. <laughs> the fluctuations are so much greater. Yeah. So I think that's why women get often the title, you know, more hormonal than men. Uh, but it's just because of this difference in the amount of ebb and flow of hormone activity that's ap- happening for a woman compared to a man. Why did you take up this profession? Is it, Was there a hormonal, I'm just saying it, imbalance in you or is it something you wanted to understand more about yourself or help others? Yeah, a combination really. So I've always, it's always lit me up whenever I learn like what a food is doing to my body, for example. But then, yeah, of course, my own health uh, issues have always been uh, gut issues since I was a child, always had problems with digestion. Then, um, and also, you know, because everything's linked, right, from the gut problems, then Mm. I had hormone imbalance that caused really bad PMS for me. I had the title as a dragon lady from an (laughs) ex-partner. Literally. I, once a month is a great way to be a dragon lady. Get all, just bent everything out. I feel like it's a release. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, right. So, but obviously it can be supported. And I did do a lot of changes to my diet and lifestyle. And now, you know, I don't have PMS like that. I wouldn't say I was a dragon lady anymore. But, but you're saying that the hormones, you kind of figured out what to do to make it better. Absolutely. Without yeah. taking medication? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, we need to find out more. Now, we were talking yesterday uh, quite heavily about menopause because Helen had experts in. It was World Menopause Day. And it was quite shocking to hear a lot of the symptoms. Um, I'm just going to name a few. They were like memory loss, anxiety, heart palpitations, um, you know, night sweats, just not nice stuff and I've come across a lot of women and I remember seeing my mum going through a lot of this as well as a nutritionist can you give us anything alternative like I'm very holistic the last thing I want to do is take anything like medicine anything that you can yeah absolutely so so when it comes to menopause um menopause is actually that that moment when you reach 12 months of no cycle yeah so all the time before that is actually perimenopause so I often say this to clients, it's not a pathology or a disease or a condition, it's a life transition, right? So those symptoms that you're mentioning now, those hormonal changes, they're actually like a health report card of how you have or have not been looking after yourself through your menstruating years. Mm. So you're saying if you took care of yourself, your symptoms would be a lot better? Yes. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So... (laughs) 
So what happens typically in the beginning of perimenopause is that you are losing progesterone. That's the first hormone typically to decrease, right? So the interesting thing about progesterone is that the building blocks to make it are the same building blocks to make cortisol, right? So when we have this high stress that can, again, come from all different parts, you know, of our environment, the stress on the body, it's making, it's stealing progesterone to make more cortisol. I see. And this is actually called the progesterone steal. I see. Right? So you're going to have less progesterone anyway, putting a stress in your adrenals. And then you're hitting that time of your life when it's going to get depleted even further. Mm. And that's when you're going to have these changes happen to you, which can be more severe to some than others. Are there any supplements or any foods we should eat during this kind of time? Yeah. So a really nice one is to use adaptogens at this time, right? So adaptogens help us become more resilient to stress. So adaptogens are basically a category of like plants. Um, so they can be like maca root, um, ashwagandha. Oh, I see. Yeah, those yeah. kind. Yeah, and those you can get of- you can get those a lot in um, in a lot of medicines anyway. The natural ones like magnesium at night. They they put them within that, and you can combine them there exactly. as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're they're really really great for supporting your stress management and actually boosting your progesterone as well. Okay. Um, yeah, Agnes Castus is a really good one. Rhodiola. There's quite a few. Okay. Now, Anika's texting saying, my 14-year-old daughter has PCOS and has had a period for a month. The, doc- the doctor put her on the pill, but I don't want this to be a long-term solution. What can be done, please? Yeah. So when it comes to PCOS, it's usually either uh, an adrenal link or an androgen link. Androgen meaning insulin. So it can actually be coming from either of these places. So, I mean, if it's insulin, she will need to just look after insulin sensitivity. So with that, you can, you can use uh, inositol, uh, chromium, these kind of uh, supplements that can help increase the se- insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. You can ensure there's enough healthy fats in her diet, enough protein, um, ensuring that she isn't eating too late because actually the, the timing that we eat affects our hormones as well. How so? So in the morning, we're naturally more insulin sensitive, right? Because the sun is up. That's the time we're supposed to eat. When it goes down in the evening, our insulin sensitivity decreases. And so that we cannot use, um, we're not uh, taking the food in uh, and breaking it down as we're supposed to. So we can get stored as fat easily, which increases our insulin levels, which make these symptoms worse. Remember the hormone hierarchy at the top has an impact on progesterone and estrogen. Yeah. Also, what about um, PMS? Now, you're talking about that you were the dragon lady, but you fixed it with your hormones. How did you fix it? Because so many people struggle and they don't want to take the pill. No, 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 no. The pills just makes it worse. So, I mean, it's multifaceted, right? The foundations are always there. So, again, stress management is super key. Sleep, paramount, your gut health and your liver health because... When you have used these hormones like estrogen, they have to be excreted from the body. So if your liver and your gut are not working optimally, they get recycled. Mm. That's what was happening to me because I was not, my digestive capability was not adequate. So I was just recycling estrogen in the body, which meant I had more estrogen than progesterone causing these symptoms. So I, I lean into a lot with seeds. Seeds are fantastic. Something called seed cycling. If you've heard of that, you can use four different kinds of seeds at different times in the month 
to help uh, support all of these hormones. I've seen that. Somebody sent me these seeds and I didn't understand what they were. And now you just explained it. Yeah. Um, talking about gut health, um, we've got a text by Aruana saying that, you know, she, she has kimchi regularly. She has yogurt regularly, but she still doesn't feel like her digestive system is on a daily basis. It's not good. Yeah. It's not bad, but yeah. she doesn't go regularly. So what yeah. would you would you say? Yeah, I mean, if you how you if you're putting in, you know, the pre and probiotic foods, if you're having things like, you know, ginger, things like that supplement wise, then it really needs to look at your lifestyle because your gut is completely connected to your nervous system, mm. right? That gut brain connection. So, how is your morning, you know, taking even if it's 5 minutes. I know we're very busy. Taking that 5 minutes with some warm water with lemon to sit still. And just take that 5-10 minutes to sit still using the warm water to help um, stimulate things that can help you go in the morning. Mm. Um, and then look at how you're eating or you're eating on the go or eating while you're talking. All of these little things, they have such an impact. You know, it all focuses around mindfulness. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. What you yeah. eat, what you're, how you're yeah. walking, how you're talking, everything. Um, just one final question because we're running out of time. Blessy says, is brain fog caused by hormones? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, your cognition is impacted by your estrogen, your progesterone, insulin. Mm. So absolutely it is. And again, it comes into, you know, all that we've spoken about today. You know, the hierarchy. You know, if you are looking after your stress, if you're looking after your, making sure you've got a well-balanced meal, right? So you're not mm. spiking your insulin, you know, using like apple cider vinegar, for example, before your food. So amazing i tested it with a um with the um, glucose monitor myself yeah How, the impact was insane so you're saying have a little bit with water before every meal yeah absolutely and that's good for everybody everybody yeah it's really good for you gut health as well okay that's good i'm gonna try that i've got it but i don't eat it every day or drink it every day i should say yeah now if people want to contact you where can they find you yeah so my instagram is joeproctor.nutrition or joeproctor.com um, you can find me on there. You can. I've got free resources that you can use. You can book in if you want a session. But yeah, that's where you can find me. YouTube as well. Again, joeproctor.nutrition. Thank you so much. Lawrence Agbo is a Dubai-based personal trainer who trains at TK MMA Fitness in Media City. And when I say this man has muscles, I literally have not seen muscles. I'm kind of thinking of like the Hulk when, <laughs> I, when I saw him walk in. How are you doing, Lawrence? I am great. So, hang on a minute. I mean, you're extremely toned, but very fit, <laughs> right? And I don't mean that in any kind of way. How often do you work out a day, a uh, week? A day? <laughs> uh, six. Six days, six days a week. Six days a week, right. Yes. So when did you get into personal training? Because, you know, you know, sometimes I do hear stories about people saying, you know, I used to get bullied when I was younger, so I started training, or they had a lack of self-confidence. Is there anything like that for you, or was it really just wanted to stay fit? Uh, yeah, so for me, it's more about staying fit. Uh, when I was younger, I played a lot of sports. Um, so I was quite lean when I was younger. And then when I reached about 18, 19, I started going to the gym. I started getting bigger, of course. Uh, I played rugby as well. So, of course, rugby needs to be a little bit bigger. So I started to put on size. And then I've just been training from then. So how old are you, may I ask? 
now just turned 30 this year. Yeah, so I find that, like, you know, when you're in your 20s and, and things like that, it's very easy to maintain your health. And as you get older, sometimes, like, I was at the gym the other day, I was telling everyone, and my trainer was 25, and I literally pulled a muscle. I think she thinks oh, I'm really? still 25, <laughs> right? It doesn't usually happen, but I think I just didn't warm up. Yeah. Um, it's hard to maintain as you get older, do you think, or not? It definitely is. Definitely is. As you get older, you have more responsibilities. Uh, your body starts to ache a little bit more. You're not as young as you used to be. So oh, yeah, definitely. For two gets do, you, do you do sports <laughs> massages? Because you can do this afterwards. So, so let's talk about muscle mass and strengthening. Because when I was growing up, you know, we always used to hear about, you know, um, aerobics and like, you know, you had these all these Jane Fonda's and all these people coming out with videotapes. Then people start <laughs> joining the gym. I actually do. Um, EMS right now okay. which I really like I think it's just finding out what suits you yeah. um, but I actually do like playing sports but because the weather's so hot here in the summer I, I can't really do much outside but what I've noticed recently is they're saying as you get older forget cardio and do more weights do you agree with this? I definitely do agree with this so as you do more weights so as you reach your 30s, like I did this year. <laughs> Don't worry, you're still young. Stop, stop showing off. <laughs> so yeah, as you reach your 30s, uh, you tend to begin to lose tissue. So your muscles, your kidneys, uh, liver and other organs, they begin to lose cells. It's called atrophy. Mm. Uh, so it's completely normal. It happens. And then your bone density as well begins to reduce. Your bones uh, lose minerals. And your God, it's so depressing, <laughs> Lawrence. What, it's, it's life. Not, there's it's not life. much to look forward to, really. It's, it's life. <laughs> it's life. We're humans. We get older. It happens. But as you do weight training, uh, weight training is basically trying to slow down this process. <laughs> but let's talk about uh, one thing I've noticed um, people saying to me, especially as women, is it helps with osteoporosis, a lot of weight training. My mom's never done weight training. It's not something that she grew up even thinking about. A lot of women her age are just walking. Yeah. So okay. is it, I, would a 50, 60-year-old suddenly say, okay, I'm going to start picking up weights? Or is mm -hmm. this something we should be doing as women and men from an earlier age? Yeah, yeah, you should, definitely should. So weight training, uh, more weight training you do, or strength training, I, su I should say, uh, your bones begin to get denser. So in turn, your bones will get stronger and because your bones are stronger, it reduces the chances of getting osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. Is the goal to lose fast and gain muscle? Like uh, should we be losing fat and gaining muscle or do we still need to maintain a certain amount of fat? Because there's a lot of people who just think getting skinnier is getting healthier. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely not. Um, you should, definitely should still have fat in your body. Um, so yeah, doing strength training, you do lose fat and you gain muscle at the same time. So uh, again, the muscle, building muscle, you'll get stronger. It helps with everyday life. You'll be functionally fit as well. So functionally fit, you'll, everyday tasks will be a lot easier. For example, you order something online, a big uh, appliance or furniture, the delivery man puts it on the floor, he can't put it, pick it up now. <laughs> but if you're functionally fit, you'll be able to pick it up and put it in whatever room you need to. How does strength training um, help our metabolism? So metabolism is pretty straightforward. So uh, the more strength training you do, the faster your metabolism is. Okay, so the more muscles you have, the faster your metabolism. If you have slow metabolism, uh, so if you don't do as much strength training, 
you'll have a slow metabolism. And what that means is uh, your body will, won't be able to burn as many calories in a short amount of time. Okay. Okay. So even at rest, your body's burning calories. If you do more weight training, mm -hmm. then your body will be burning more calories a lot faster, even at rest okay. and during activities. So whatever, you see, I don't like the gym. So I came across, <laughs> I, I like sports, right? And I came across EMS. And the reason I didn't, um, the reason I didn't, I liked it is because it was 25 minutes twice a week. I don't like going to the gym every yeah, day. Okay. Um, and I met someone the other day who actually said to me, you don't need to go to the gym every day to lose weight, but you go six days a week. Is that just because it's your job? Uh, yeah, partly, but, but I, I like being strong. <laughs> you like, yeah. Richie down the, in one of the other stations, he goes there six days a week too. Okay. Um, what kind of clients come to you um, and what kind of tips can you give us, when, especially when it comes to getting older? Because we were just talking about hormones and aging. Yeah. After 30, after 40, you know, it does get harder. Let's talk about 40s plus. Okay. Uh, so I get all types of clients, um, teenagers, They want to play sports and want to be better in their sports or if they have bad postures, they want to improve their posture. And I get older clients as well that mm -hmm. want to uh, usually just to reduce fat and tone up as well. Uh, so with the older clients, uh, some of them have no experience in the gym as well, which I've had a lot of clients like that. So with them, start a little bit slower, get them used to the machines or e different exercises And I teach them correct posture, correct technique as well, which is very important to prevent injuries. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so correct technique, uh, let them uh, do different exercises to find out what they like. Okay, so it's all about finding out what they, what they prefer. Okay, so when I'm not around, they'll be able to do their own exercises, do what they like, not just what I tell them to do. Do you have any tips on nutrition and food? Nutrition and food. Uh, so I usually say go for a high protein diet. Uh, never cut out carbs. There's a lot of people that say cut out carbs. Totally. But Tell everybody you, why we need carbs. You need carbs for energy, basically. If you have no carbs, you have no energy. If you have no energy, you can't go to the gym or mm. work out. So you need carbs. <laughs> you do. Um, any myths you want to break or bust about strength training that, you know, quite stereotypical i think the number one well for women anyway is saying uh if you do strength training or weight training you will get bulky you'll get too muscular or you'll look like a man yeah <laughs> um that is a myth like uh it takes a lot of work mm. to get really bulky uh for a woman anyway because naturally women have a lower level of testosterone yeah in their bodies and that's the key hormone for Uh, building, building muscle. Okay. Have you ever strength. done yoga? I have. I have. And, I used to love yoga. You did? Yes, because <laughs> yes. I used to say that a lot of my friends go to the gym. They can't do yoga because the, you use your body in a very different way. So how, exactly. did, how did you find yoga? Because I feel like if you do both together, they work well. Keep yeah. The flexibility they really, they really do. Yeah. So before when I was playing a lot of sports, I had a lot of injuries. Mm. Uh, so when I started yoga... I was uh, getting more flexible, improving my mobility. So in turn, I had less injuries. 
which helped me a lot. Okay, I've just I had... really need to start it. Again. <laughs> yeah, you should. I'll take you. Don't worry. So I've just had a text saying, as a woman who's going through menopause, losing weight is an issue, and I'm training with weights around three to four times a week. I would say that I am quite strong, um, but I just can't get rid of the extra three kilograms. Any advice? <laughs> Um, usually those last few kilograms is probably down to your diet. Ah. Yeah, so diet is diet is key. It's I probably know. more important than uh, training. Yeah, because I did learn recently that portion control is a big thing. Because yeah, uh, once I changed that, everything changed for me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But my eyes are still bigger than my stomach. <laughs> anyway, so if people want to learn, um, you know, book you for training or have a chat with you, where can we find you online? Uh, you can go to my Instagram. It's L A Gaines mm. on Instagram. Uh, just send me a message, and we can get you booked in. Or we've come down to TKMMA, gym I train at. Yeah, they have a free boot camp on the Saturdays, which is really good. Um, oh, that's good. About a hundred people turn up wow. for that, which is really good. Amazing. Um, yeah, so just send me a message, reach out. Okay, Lawrence, we'll go from there. Thank you so much, and I'm going to post a picture because this guy is like big. <laughs> <laughs> So about two months ago, I decided to get some new photos done as a presenter because my last ones were like three years old. And I know one of the most important things about a photo shoot is choosing the right photographer. If you don't feel comfortable with them, I personally don't think the pictures come out well. So today we have some top tips for you from a photographer I recently worked with and how to get the best from your photo shoot and some tips as well if you're a photographer yourself. But the best thing is she's walked in. Her name is Olga Makeda from Stu Williamson photography studios and she is so nervous and I'm like what goes around comes around Olga how are you I'm good (laughs) yes so when I went to her studio I cannot pose to save my life I said to her my best pictures come out when I'm natural so we put some old school R&B music we basically cordoned off the whole studio no one could come in except for one or two of my friends they were making me laugh they were talking to me so now this is my job to make you relax today right yes please (laughs) so uh, before we go into some top tips from you because I learned quite a lot on that photo shoot from you. Um, briefly tell me how you got into photography. Um, I started really early in my uh, in my life because my dad was into photography when I was little and he was teaching me how to hold the camera, how to get every everything in a nice frame. Um, so I just got into it and I was shooting the, the analog camera then getting pictures developed with him as well. And um, yeah, then I realized later in life when I was at uni that this is something that I want to do. I want to capture very special moments for for people and myself, including because with photography, I think the moment can last forever. Totally true. So when I was looking for a photographer, you know, I did call up a few and I looked at a few. Um, I know why I chose you. I didn't even know who you were. One of the biggest reasons I chose you, and it's not sexist, is because you're female. A, yeah, I, I get judged by that a lot. No, no, I'd never worked with a female photographer. And secondly, I knew there was going to be a lot of clothes changing. I'm not very good at posing. And I, I wanted a woman to show me how to pose as a woman in a photo. And I thought, a man's not really going to know that, right? Well, um, some, Or do they? Yeah, of course. I mean, if you're into it, and of course you have to 
to know how to get the person relaxed and how to do a certain pose. Like mm. one of my colleagues, he 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 looks really funny when he's showing <laughs> women how to pose and how to put the hand on the hips. So, but who but taught, he still does? It. Who taught you? Because you were telling me certain ways to put my arms, and they made a big difference in the photo shoot. Um, so I, I just believe that photography is about lines as well. Those mm. lines lead into certain things like face, for example, that you can focus more on, uh, on something that you want to show about this person, either this is their body shape yeah. or, the or their face or the hair yeah. or, um, or maybe their personality. There's so many things you can do just to get person in a nice How do you know who is the right photographer for you? What are some of the checklists? Um, The checklist, um, yeah, uh, that's funny because I discussed this with my uh, colleague earlier and I was like, um, as long as, because in social media you can check everything about that person, right? How how he is, what kind of photography he does, if the style is matching with your expectations and Mm. uh, you actually think about the person that you will be vibing with, Mm. you will be comfortable with. Um, But but that's how we didn't know who you would vibe. It it actually like I think I took twenty thirty minutes to warm up first of all that I was posing, mm-hmm. then getting to know a little bit about your character, and by the third outfit we were just like having so much fun. That was my yeah. favorite, right? Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, because I I just believe that we kind of like decided like okay, let's just go crazy. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. This I, this is like my favorite part. I think one of the things sometimes we take so seriously is is we have to be serious in these photos because they're professional. But I found that having more fun you get a better picture out of yourself, would you say? Yeah, um, because, I mean, the first 10 minutes or 15 minutes of the shoot, of course, it's about more about breaking an ice. Mm. Uh, Maybe, like, take a few pictures, listen to nice music. Like you said, that we put some R&B music. It actually helps you relax. Yeah, I thought it was in a music video. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's... Are there this any do's and <laughs> do's and don'ts when it comes to clothes that you would tell people do not wear this or avoid these kind of shapes, styles, and colors? Um, yeah, we usually um, suggest for the families, especially to um, to come up with like matching outfits first for oh. something like which is classic. It's white tops and blue jeans. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the pictures that you're gonna look after like maybe ten years, and mm-hmm. you still think that it looks nice. Um, but for business, we are mostly having corporate people coming around, taking their pictures. So we're talking about suits, ties and yeah. uh, and all of that. But the color doesn't actually matter at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, as long as it fits you, as long as the, nice, as the clothing is fitting you nicely. So we, we're trying to ask to avoid the baggy clothing or, or like big patterns. So uh, it won't kind of like take attention from you. Mm. It, there is going to be more focus on you and your posing, your personality. Should you always get a mood board from the photographer before you say yes to get an idea that you're aligned with each other's vision? Um, for uh, for me personally, I love to do mood boards. So I love to plan my shoots ahead like we did with you, right? So yeah. we kind of like come up with what we're going to wear, what we're going to do. But I I, um, I think also I, I knew exactly where they were going to go, these pictures, where they were for. Sometimes people go there with no idea what they're, where they're going to post them. So should you have that idea as well in your head? Um, I think so, yeah. I would agree that you kind of need to pre-plan this whole thing, like where you want to use them or 
where you want to use them. Okay, when it comes to taking photos of ourselves on our phones, now look, if you look at the phones, it's quite scary. The quality of them is incredible. Yeah, I know, yeah, I know they don't replace obviously traditional cameras that you use um, in studio lighting where you are. But they are really good. Any tips when you want to take pictures of yourself? I've been doing a lot recently on self-timer because my cousin keeps telling me just do that. Um, from my perspective, I really like to highlight three, three, three things like um, lighting, yeah. angle and, um, and lines. So when you're taking selfie, of course, you kind of need to understand which angle works best for you. Like you, you can kind of like even see it from your Instagram, like even without noticing it, you always post a picture from a certain angle yeah. that you like the most after all. And, uh, and the lighting, like, like this at the studio right now, it actually works pretty well for selfies, but... Um, not good for your eyes, though. <laughs> <laughs> not good for your eyes, though, that's true. Um, and um, yeah, the angle matters a lot because um, um, especially in iPhones uh, the camera is very wide angle so you kind of need to pose the person the right way and take the picture from the right angle so you won't kind of like disturb their height or make them look shorter make them look too tall and you kind of need to mind that to take a nice nice picture okay and before we wrap up um tell me about these workshops you're doing if anybody wants to join Ooh, in um uh, about workshops it's mostly for my colleagues we have this big division schools division and in studio uh too and um so they kind of have this school break right now so uh we decided to give them a little booster into creativity to show photography from a different perspective because their job is mostly about consistency than creativity. And so, yeah, I, I would call that a booster to so, kind of like push them f uh, towards the uh, creative world. And where can they find out more information about this? I I haven't published anything yet. I, I am, saw it though on your Instagram. <laughs> I, I, yes, Instagram, it's, I mean, it's just like uh, a little bit of a preview. But maybe, yeah, later I will announce... So tell us, proper where, way. tell us where they can see your photos and where we can follow you. Um, it's uh, Olha Mikheda on You have Instagram. to spell that for everybody. O-L-H-A-M-E-K-H-E-D-A, -E -E Dubai photographer. I have this beautiful picture of myself, just there blonde you go. girl, Barbie. You, you haven't posted our photo shoot on your page. When's that going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. I'm joking, I'm joking. All right, Olga, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So I have a very special guest today. They were at Jitex. Uh, there's a group of students that started an initiative called A School Ahead of Time. And they're focusing on educational technology and the future of education. They've come up with an idea for a sustainable school powered by solar energy that makes use of AI across different aspects of the school. And to find out more, I am joined by three, which I think out of seven of them are with me right now. We have Farhad Bar. Aha and Mehdi, welcome to the show, boys. Thank you for Thank having you us. Thank much. you. And making sure all your mics are on. There's a lot of technology going on here right now. <laughs> so tell me first, um, let's start with you, Fahad. What were you doing at Jitex this week? So uh, we're a school ahead of time and we're basically on walk-up students. And we conducted uh, extensive uh, research on building a school. Uh, we proposed the idea to uh, Jitex. And uh, we were capable enough of getting the uh, uh, school run throughout the competition and were uh, 
uh, happily to show that we were accumulated the enough information of uh, participating in the event. So there were seven of you involved, is that right? Yeah, there eight. were seven of us. There was eight, eight. of you. Eight. Yeah. Okay, so Baha, were all eight of you had to be at Jitex all four days a week? Definitely, I think it was crucial that they... Are you sure this wasn't to get off school? I'm just checking. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, no. <laughs> okay, so so when you were there, what happens? Like, do, everyone has a stand. Who was coming up to you and how were you explaining this future school? So, first of all, we've got many investors coming up to us. Wow. Um, we had people from all around the world coming up to us and they wanted to know more about our project. I think it was essential to have eight people there because then we were doing shifts because it was from eight to five and it's really tiring if you're going to stand there and explain your project all the day. So we split ourselves into two teams, four people, mm. and then we would take shifts of who will explain what. And so tell me, Mehdi, where the whole idea came up from? Like, did you all get together? Was this a competition or is this something that students do do at Jitex? Because I've never heard of it. Uh, so basically last year we had this uh, event happening in our school, this competition called al Innovates, Innovates, yeah. where a bunch of groups get chosen from each one of the three schools and they end up going to al Muakib Khawanij and pitching their ideas to a bunch of judges. Ah. Now we came in the top five in that competition and we really wanted to show our efforts in Jitex since we were promised that if we end up doing well in that competition, we would be taken to Jitex the next year. Wow. So throughout the summer, we've been working together to kind of build up on our project and maximize all the ideas which we've thought about. Okay, so let's talk to Fahad again. Now, what did what does the future of your school look like, the one that you were presenting at Jitex? So it's basically a school that could live up to 100 years and uh, we view sustainability as a huge role in our school. We've also implemented lots of uh, AI and high-tech technology within our school that have like really shown uh, immersive uh, experiences for the world and it should be a topic that should be spoken about here in the UAE as well as ensuring our project could reach to Southeast Asia as well as African countries who are in need of uh, education. Okay. And let me ask you, Baha, when it comes to AI, where will it be used? Because some people are quite scared of AI, how it will take over a lot of positions and roles. Where are you using it in the school? How will it help? So definitely in our school, everything's going to be assisted using AI. Now, I always hear many people complain and they say AI and technology to universes that can't come together, especially in the education sector. But uh, that is wrong. We would rather view AI and technological tools like ChatGPT as something that is valuable in education. So rather than replacing the full traditional uh, educational teaching with AI and technology, we see AI as a complement that, that can enhance our learning experience. Do you use AI or ChatGPT, whether it be at school or for other projects out of home at all, any of you? Well, it's a lot of help, so yeah, definitely. You do use it? We do use it. I, uh, okay, when we're allowed to use it, of course. Oh, so yeah. are you allowed to use it at school? Depending on what project we're doing, mm. yes, we're allowed to use it. Mm. So, for example, if we're writing an article for social studies, then we can use it. But if we are doing an essay for English or something other than that, then we can't use it. Okay, Mehdi, tell me about um, the shape of this school and something to do with the solar power. Yes, so our whole idea is we're trying to make a sustainable school, yet at the same time integrating AI into the education sector. So focusing on the sustainable part, we're going to be focusing on 
the materials being used and we're keeping a close eye on what we're building a school out of mm. to make sure that all the materials are reusable and we can use that as a way for us to make sure that nothing can ever be too hard for us to afford or to get and we can focus more on the education of the students. Now for the solar panels, we're planning on keeping it all on top of the school as uh, through our design we thought that's the most logical way of us of course getting energy and it's green, it's perfect for us and it's preventing pollution that way it's the best way for us to use energy and convert it into the machinery that we have so in your opinion what is lacking in schools that young people you feel would make a big difference for students today definitely we can say the curriculum because when we sat down to come up with our project we noticed that one thing our schools or the schools in general don't have is a curriculum that's student-centered if you think about it in a certain way, you find out that the traditional curriculum is still going on in schools till this day. And the traditional curriculum focuses more on academics that, rather than the personal life of the students. So what we want to do is we want to create or add to the traditional curriculum something that motivates the students to care about or to do uh, more stuff related to the things they like, their hobbies, their uh, personal interest and whatsoever. Yeah, I agree. I don't think sitting down and doing two, three-hour exams is for everybody. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what else would you wish you had as a student that you can see like 10, 15 years down the line? Um, Whether it's in a school, like for example, you know, um, I was telling the boss, can we have those sleep pods? You know, things <laughs> like that. I mean, tell me, is there anything else that you can think of? Because Google do a lot of that, don't they? Yes, they do. There are many ideas actually around the world. Some of them are even being implemented. Schools in Japan are an inspiration, for example, with the sleep pods, as you mentioned. But something that we'd personally like to see is a more adaptive curriculum or teaching system that helps the students discover or learn more about what they like. So it, it focuses more on their strengths rather than just everyone to yes, do Yes, because as you mentioned earlier, not everyone can sit in class for yeah. 50 minutes and learn. Some people, for example, would like to walk while they read or others would like to uh, do other learn visually rather than just sit in class and listen to the teacher yeah. the whole day. So how, how has studying changed you guys since COVID? Because a lot of us all had to go online. Did that make it easier for you? Did it help or do you prefer being at school face to face? Uh, so, of course, with COVID came a lot of uh, complications. Uh, it was kind of hard for us to get used to the online curriculum. Mm. But we kind of ended up getting used to it, of course. But uh, because we got used to it, it was kind of hard for us again to integrate back into the normal curriculum. Did, did you find it hard becoming sociable again after that? Well, personally, no. <laughs> personally, no, yeah. Maybe was dying to get back. <laughs> <laughs> but like it was, of course, when it came to exams, quizzes and being just physically there, it was very difficult mm. for all of us. I can, I can assure you that I'm speaking for everyone on this. But of course, we got used to it again. Yeah. And hopefully, inshallah, nothing can happen to change that. And we can stay on the track that we're going through right now. So when will this school get built? Do we have any offers? What do we need to do? Who do we need to talk to? Uh, so we <laughs> have the design plan planned out as well as the curriculum. So the only thing we're lacking is basically investors as well as our uh, long-term plan. So we could run this project within one to two years mm -hmm. at most since the design is ready, since we have the curriculum ready. But we also have to take in part that... Uh, 
ensuring that our education is viable for uh, individuals as well as parents. That's of uh, great importance, mm-hmm. as well as actually implementing the curriculum within each individual's laptops. So, so those are the only things that are holding us back. Other than that, I think we are uh, soon to be ready. And, uh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So if people, let's say there's an investor listening right now, how do they contact you? Or do you want me to tell them to contact me and I'll send them your details? Tell me. Uh, so we basically uh, have a sponsor called Dubai Next. And we've actually proposed our project and pitched it onto the website. So any investors that are interested in our project can be done there. All payments can be done there as well as... The so the website is called Dubai, Dubai Next. Next, where uh, pe- people, investors could invest as well as mm. look at the idea as a whole. Amazing. Can people put donations there or is it real investors? People can put, put donations, donations as well. Why yeah. may put a little any, donation? Any form of <laughs> so much that we <laughs> much appreciate. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate you coming in and I wish you all the best. Thank okay. you thank so you. much. Thank you. For thank thank you. Tune in to Afternoons with Helen Farmer every weekday from 2 to 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.